elevators are unusual places. They're, they're just a little different, and apparently there are some unwritten rules about elevators. I mean, when you walk up to an elevator, you are required to push the call button even if someone else already has. I mean, it's like if that button's been pushed, it's like you have to push it so that people will know why you're standing there, you know, so that they won't think that you're just being creepy standing there. So you have to push the button. And if the elevator doesn't come in about 30 seconds, you have to push it again. That's the rule. Uh, there also seems to be a rule against talking in elevators. I have been with friends, we've walked up to an elevator, we've had this conversation. The door's open, we walk in, the conversation stops. We get to the floor, the door's open, the conversation picks up right where it had left off. I, I don't know why that's the case, but silence seems to be a thing in the elevator. Now, you are allowed to say a couple of things. If you get in an elevator and somebody else is standing by the button, you're allowed to tell them what floor to push. And if the elevator's really slow, sometimes you can say, wow, this is a slow elevator, but silence is really preferred in elevators. That's just kind of the way that it is. And then here's the weirdest rule of all, you're not allowed to look at anyone in an elevator. <laughs> you must stare straight ahead. And by straight ahead, I mean at the doors. Everybody turns, faces the door, and stares. Maybe you can watch numbers if there's a number thing above it, but, but you, you can't look at anyone. Those are the rules. And I don't know why, but those are the rules. Well, several years ago at a Christian conference, some friends and I decided that we were going to break the elevator rules. There were three of us, and so we waited for the elevator, and wouldn't you know it, the elevator that came was pretty crowded. So one of my friends stepped in on this side and kept looking towards the back of the elevator and at the people. The other friend stepped in on this side, kept looking at the back. That left just me, and as I was approaching the elevator, all of the eyes looking at me had that, you really aren't gonna try to crowd into this elevator expression on their face, right? But I did and I kept facing the back. One of my friends was too freaked out and had turned around by this time, but I kept facing the back, and the doors closed behind me, and I felt pretty uncomfortable because, well, I'm breaking the elevator rules, right? So when the doors closed, I said something like, well, you probably wonder why I called this meeting. <laughs> Everybody started laughing and an amazing thing happened. People began talking and joking and laughing in an elevator. That's just not supposed to happen. But elevators are kind of a microcosm of our world today. It's a large, impersonal space where anonymity and isolation and independence are the norm. And in the world today, like elevators, it shows us that people can be surrounded by others in a crowded setting and still not experience community.
still not experience community. I mean, we can be a part of a company or a club or a growth group and not really feel like we belong, not really feel like we're accepted by others, and we can be on a team or in a church or even be in what appears to be a close family and really not have significant relationships. And it's way too easy for us to find ourselves today surrounded by people constantly while feeling constantly alone and lonely. But this series is designed to help us with that. It's designed to reinforce in us the fact that God didn't design us to do life in isolation. He designed us to do life in a relationship with him and with others. And it didn't take God very long to express this priority. Look at what it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, I see that it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make the companion he needs one just right for him. God said it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. And so God created Eve for him to be a companion. And this verse isn't just a verse that applies to marriage relationships. This verse is stating one of God's fundamental truths. Relationships are important because God decided we needed other people in our lives. God created us to live our lives in community with others. And that's why we're going to spend the next six weeks uh, talking about how we can have the best relationships ever. Today, we will kind of do an overview of relationships. We'll talk about one of the key secrets for developing great relationships. And then in coming weeks, we have very practical messages planned using biblical wisdom to suggest four things you can do right now to improve your marriage. And four things you can do right now to uh, be a better parent. And four things you can do right now to be a better friend and to uh, improve your influence. And four things you can do right now to improve your relationship with Jesus. And because it is important to God that we enjoy life and relationships, it seems crucial to me that we have a biblical view of relationships so that we can relate to others, so that we can deal with relational problems in a realistic and healthy and grace-filled way. In chapter 2 of their excellent book called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making, Paul Tripp and Timothy Lane share eight biblical facts that summarize how God wants us to think about relationships. So let me quickly share their eight facts about relationship. Here's the first fact. You were made for relationships. You were made for relationships. That's what that passage we just read said. I think when God said it wasn't good for us to be alone, he said that. I think that had more to do with who God is rather than Adam's neediness or our neediness. You see, God created us to be social beings because he is a social God. Even the doctrine of the Godhead, you know, that refers to God expressing himself in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Even that emphasizes the need for relationships. And uh, so God created us for relationship. God went to great lengths 
to make it possible for us to stay in relationship with him even after we have messed things up, even after we have sinned and failed. Here's the second fact. In some way, all relationships are difficult. In some way, all relationships are difficult. The authors say, uh, while the first fact is exciting, we still have to deal with reality. All of our relationships are less than perfect. They require work if they're going to thrive quickly. On the euphoric hills of uh, Genesis 2 comes Genesis 3, where the entrance of sin brings frustration and confusion into relationships. The third fact they give is each of us is tempted to make relationships the end rather than the means. They point out that the main relationship that Adam and Eve were supposed to be focused on and enjoying was their relationship with God. But they started focusing on each other instead. They started focusing on their relationship and they got themselves into trouble. The authors say it this way, we settle for the satisfaction of human relationships when they weren't meant to point us to the perfect relational satisfaction found only in God. The fourth fact is this, there are no secrets that guarantee problem-free relationships. I wish there were, don't you? Skills and techniques appeal to us because they promise relational problems can be fixed by tweaking our behavior without changing our hearts. But the Bible says something very different. It says Christ is the only real hope for relationships because only he can dig deep enough to address the core motivations, the core desires of our heart. The fifth fact is this, at some point, you will wonder whether relationships are worth it. At some point, you will wonder whether relationships are worth it. The health and the maturity of a relationship is not measured by an absence of problems, but by how we deal with the problems that uh, show up, that become uh, apparent. We are all sinners, and we all live with sinners. And so, uh, a good relationship involves honestly identifying the sinful patterns that, that lead us uh, to trouble. And so, we've got to do that. Sixth fact is this, God keeps us in messy relationships for His redemptive purpose. Tripp and Lane write this, what happens in the messiness of relationships is that our hearts are revealed and our weaknesses are exposed and we start coming to the end of ourselves. Only when this happens do we reach out for the help that God alone can provide. Weak and needy people finding their hope in Christ's grace are what mark a mature relationship. The most dangerous aspect of your relationship is not your weakness, but your delusion of strength your delusion of strength. Seventh fact, the fact that our relationships work as well as they do is a sure sign of grace. It's a sure sign of grace. We all mess things up, and we tend to focus on our failures. We tend to focus on our weaknesses, but the fact is it's amazing that any marriage survives. It's amazing that any friendship lasts any length of time. 
It is amazing that our families stay together at all. The only way that this happens is God working in us and in our relationships with each other. And when you look closely, you can see God's hand working and his undeserved mercy playing out in your relationships. He can even use relationships that fail to teach us to avoid those, some of those mistakes in the future. And the eighth fact that they have is Scripture offers a clear hope for our relationships. Scripture offers a clear hope for our relationships. The authors write this, in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus brought reconciliation in two fundamental ways. Jesus reconciled us to God, which then becomes the foundation for the way he reconciles us to one another. The New Testament offers hope that our relationships can be characterized by things like humility, and gentleness, and patience, and edifying honesty, and peace, and forgiveness, and compassion, and love. Isn't it wonderful that God's grace can make this possible even for sinners in a fallen world? The truth is, our relationships can be the most joy-filled part of our life, or the most pain-filled part of our life. It can be the most joy-filled part of our lives or the most pain-filled part of our lives. We give the people that we love the power to make us smile and to make us feel secure or to make us cry, to make us feel crushed and bruised. So let's begin this series by looking at God's wisdom about relationships, and let's begin by talking about me, you, and we. Let's look at a few foundational goals that we need to set to make any of our relationships work. The first foundational goal that we should have is becoming me. Becoming me. Now, before we start talking about how to deal with others in our lives, we need to talk about how we should be dealing with ourselves. And people really don't usually start here when we start talking about relationships. Usually, people start with the goal of trying to find the right person. They have this goal of finding the right person or the right people in their lives. But I think that's the wrong goal. I think that there's a better way to get started in this. Uh, State it this way. Instead of finding the right person, I become the right person. Instead of finding the right person, I become the right person. A message by Stephen Furtick kind of helped me formulate some thoughts around this. The truth is, happiness isn't finding the right person, it's being the right person. And by that, I mean it's being the person that God designed you to be. You see, it isn't finding the right person. Think about it this way. If you find the right person, but you haven't become the right person, what do you think you're going to do to that right person? You're going to totally mess up the right person because you haven't become the right person yet. Now, I want to be careful here. We aren't just talking about marriage. I'm not suggesting that if you aren't married or you get divorced, that it's because you weren't the right person and you weren't ready and you are just a totally messed up person and you're not right for anyone. You're never going to be right for anyone. Listen clearly, single, uh, being single doesn't equate with being messed up or being not right. And there's really one easy way for us to prove that. 
Look at the people who are married. There are a lot of totally messed up people who are married. And being married doesn't equal having it all together. It doesn't equal being the right person. And I could offer you several examples of this, starting with our pastors. But it is important to God that we have right people in our lives. And the only way that we will have right people in our lives is for us to become the right people in our hearts. It's for us to become the right person. That's the only way that we're going to know the right people when they come along. That's the only way that we'll attract them to begin with. And, and that's really the only thing I can control anyway. It's really the only thing that I can control. I can't control whether someone is drawn to me in relationship. I can't. I can't control whether they choose me as a friend. I can't control whether they like me or don't like me, but I can control who I am. I can control who I become. And we're going to talk next week about four things you can do right now to improve your marriage. And sometimes single people really hate when we do relationship series. And one of the reasons they hate that is because often we make it sound like you aren't a complete person until you're married. We kind of give this impression that you can't be a complete person until you're married. Now, it is true that the Bible says when two people marry, they become one. It's a very beautiful picture of marriage in Scripture, two becoming one. But can I tell you what it doesn't say? The Bible doesn't say the two halves become whole. It doesn't say that the two halves become whole. Being married doesn't make you a whole person. You already are a whole person. You already are a whole person. The two whole persons come together as one in marriage. That cheesy line from the movie Jerry Maguire has really kind of messed us up. It's reinforced that you complete me. Gag. It gives that view that we're not complete until we get married. And it might be a really romantic line, but it isn't the truth. And I worry that there are some out there who really are wondering if this is right, if I'm saying the right thing. They're thinking that a person really isn't complete until they get married. And so if you're thinking that, that way right now, let me challenge you on that. If that's true, if a person isn't complete until they're married, why in the world would we worship Jesus? Why in the world would we worship Jesus who stayed single until they killed him? You see, it's just not true. Hear me clearly. You can be a happy and a healthy person and be single all of your life. And you can be a happy and a healthy person and be married. But being happy and healthy as a person requires that I focus on becoming the right person before I focus on finding the right person. And focusing on becoming the right person is focusing on what you can control. It's becoming who God has designed you to be. And according to Jesus, that's the right place for us to start. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Seek first God's kingdom and what God wants. Then all your other needs will be met as well. 
Seek first God's kingdom and what he wants. Then all your other needs will be met as well. When we have as our goal to become me, to become the person God created me to be, to become like Jesus, to be close to him, to do what he wants me to do, he promises that everything else is going to fall in place too. Everything else will fall in place. Jesus even used this language when he was asking people to follow him, when he was asking people to give their lives to ministry. Look at what it says in Mark chapter 1. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. I like that. Jesus is going to make us become what he wants us to be if we'll let him. So the first goal is to spend some time becoming me. And that is so different than where we normally start in relationships. For most people, it's all about finding. It's all about finding. I mean, first you have to find the right woman, and then you have to find a ring, and then you have to find some money, and then you have to find a date to get married, and then you have to find a place to get married, and then you have to find dresses for the bridesmaids to wear that all of them will like and probably never wear again. Then you have to find a house, and then you have to find a job, and then it seems like it's all about finding, finding, finding. And that's the wrong focus. Instead, ask yourself, who am I becoming? Who am I becoming? Am I becoming me? Am I becoming the person God desires me to be and designed me to become? Am I becoming like Jesus? When I seek him first, when I seek what he wants in my life, he makes me become me, the person he designed me to be, the person who is ready for relationships. And so the first goal is becoming me. The second goal is engaging you. It's engaging you. Now, I said a few minutes ago that you can be a happy and healthy person and stay single, or you can be a happy and healthy person and be married, but none of us can be happy and healthy and stay isolated from people. None of us can be happy and healthy and stay isolated from people. And there's a real temptation for some to do that today. I mean, sometimes people isolate because they have been so hurt in relationships. I mean, you fell in love with someone and they promised their love to you. They promised to cherish you and to love you and that didn't last very long. Or you developed a really close friendship and you spent time with the person and you told them your secrets and you enjoyed your time with them only to have them reject you and move on to a new best friend or they betrayed you and took advantage of you. Or you've honestly tried to connect with people. I mean, you really have tried to make some friends and it seems like everyone's friend basket is full. They have time for everyone except you. And you just feel like it just isn't worth it. You, you just can't go through that hurt again. You, you just can't risk it. And so you're isolating yourself, trying 
to protect yourself. But in the quiet moments of your life, you're lonely. You're lonely. I mean, you want someone to see you. You want someone to hear you. You want someone to to really know you, to laugh with you. Someone who will care about what makes you smile and what makes you hurt. Someone who will care about what makes you laugh. Someone who will care about what makes you cry. Someone who will genuinely want to spend time with you. And God wants that too. He wants that for you. He wants you to have relationships. His goal for you is to live your life in relationship with other people. And to do that, you must decide, instead of protecting myself, I take the risk of engaging you. Instead of protecting myself, I take the risk of engaging you. Notice I'm saying that each of us take the responsibility to try to engage other people in relationships. We take the responsibility. Sometimes people stand around waiting for someone to talk to them, waiting for someone to invite them to a meal after church or to invite them to their house for dinner or to invite them to a game night. And they may complain that there are just too many cliques in this school or too many cliques in this church or uh, in their club because no one is including them. No one is inviting them. Please hear the goal clearly. I take the steps to engage people. I take the responsibility for attempting to build relationships into my life. And how do we do that? Well, the passage uh, from Colossians 3 gives us some ideas on that. Let me read it to you. God has chosen you. He's made you his holy people. He loves you. So your new life should be like this. Show mercy to others. Be kind, humble, gentle, and patient. Don't be angry with each other, but forgive each other. If you feel someone has wronged you, Forgive them. Forgive others because the Lord forgave you. Together with these things, the most important part of your new life is to love each other. Love is what holds everything together in perfect unity. We love each other. We love each other by doing all of those things the passage mentions as we try to engage others. Did, did you notice that all of those things are about our relationships, showing mercy to others, being kind, being humble and gentle and patient, not getting angry with each other, forgiving each other. When you think back at some of your relationship hurts and some of your relationship failures, some of those things that have caused you to isolate, perhaps looking at this list will help you to see what was missing in that relationship. Too often our relationships have just become disposable. I mean, people walk away from friendships and from marriages and from churches far too quickly. They, they just give up instead of showing mercy or forgiving or being patient or being kind to each other. Some of you are lonely because you've decided to protect yourself from the hurt of relationship. Isn't it time to admit that your loneliness hurts just as much, just in a different way? 
Instead of working hard to stay safe, why not work just as hard at engaging people, building new relationships that are marked by mercy and by kindness and by humility and gentleness and patience and forgiveness and love? Take responsibility to try to engage others. The last goal to see today is encouraging we. It's encouraging we. After you engage people, then you have to decide if they're a right person for a close relationship with you. You engage them on a casual basis, but eventually you have to decide, is this a right person for a close relationship with me? Not everyone will be. Not everyone that you engage, not even everyone you like will be a right person for a close relationship. Sometimes a person will be nice enough, but maybe their issues trigger some of your issues. And every time you spend time together, both of you may end up worse off rather than better off. Basically, you need to really lean into the relationships that help you to continue becoming the person that God wants you to be. I mean, you aren't looking for someone who will make you their project and take responsibility for meeting your needs or for taking care of you. That's your job. You are responsible for, uh, to, to keep letting Jesus change you, to keep letting Jesus meet your needs. And you are looking for someone who cheers you on, someone who encourages you as you move toward Jesus. And on the other side, you aren't looking for people who will expect you to take care of their needs or who will become your project. That's their job. You're looking for people you can encourage as they move towards becoming what Jesus wants them to be. Let me state it this way. Instead of trying to fix each other, we encourage each other. Instead of trying to fix each other, we encourage each other. That's the type of relationship that the Bible talks about, mutual encouragement. Look at what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So encourage each other and help each other grow stronger in faith just as you are already doing. Our relationships should encourage us. They should help us to grow stronger in our faith and our relationship with Jesus. If your current relationships aren't doing that, you need to engage different people and build different relationships. So as we move from becoming me, the person that God intended me to be, and engaging you, and seek to become and encourage we, understand who we need in our lives, and who we need to be in the lives of others. The Bible makes it perfectly clear. Our relationships are key to God's plan for our lives, and when we're doing relationships right, they will move us towards Jesus, not away from him. A great relationship is one where both parties are focused on becoming who Jesus made them to be and are ready to love others and encourage them to become who Jesus wants them to be. So let me close with a scripture that will help us in all of our relationships, whether we're talking about marriage or about friendship or work relationships or relationships with our parents or with our kids. Here is the goal. It's found in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Let us think of ways to motivate each other to acts of love and good works. The right relationship can help me to become 
like Jesus, to become the person that he wants me to be. I pray that you will be here for all of the messages in this series as we look at practical things that all of us can do right now to improve our relationships so that we can have the best relationships ever.